This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? What we're talking about today, Danny, is the connection between the anti-Semitism we see on college campuses all across the country and in major cities and all these marches and critical race theory. And people might say, what, what do those two have in common? Well, actually, they have a lot in common. Critical race theory and the sort of anti-racism, anti-colonialist ideology are all driven by a, a, a thought process that divides the world into two classes – oppressors and the oppressed. And the oppressors have no rights. The oppressors can do nothing to defend themselves. They can do nothing to speak out in defense of themselves. They're they're inherently guilty. And the oppressed, on the other hand, can do anything they want because they are the oppressed. And so they can do anything they want to the oppressors in order to liberate themselves. And this is how you can see otherwise, you know, co- normal looking college students marching in defense of Hamas, which just committed one of the greatest atrocities against Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, raping women, murdering babies, chopping off people's heads, and and they're marching and taking hostages, and they take the hostage posters down because, well, you can't, if you're an oppressor, they have every right to take your children hostage. And so this is, it's it's a different manifestation, but it's the same fundamental ideology which is dividing the world into the oppressed and the oppressor and justifying all sorts of horrific actions on behalf of the so-called oppressed uh, against uh, the oppressors, whoever they are. What I love about all these ideologies, and I, I said this in our interview, is it doesn't matter who the bad guys are, right? Whether it's the communists or the Nazis or Hamas or whatever it is, the Jews are always in the wrong. The Jews are capitalists. The Jews are communists. Like, choose one, right? The Jews are capitalists. The Jews are communists. The Jews are not white people. The Jews are white people. I mean, you know, at a certain point, it's, you know, heads you win, tails I lose problem. And while it sounds funny when you put it like that, it is so deep-seated, and I did think it was absolutely fascinating to talk about the commonalities with, with critical race theory because this is as insidious and as dangerous uh, an ideology as many of the ones that we regularly vilify, right? You know, whether it was Soviet communism or it was Nazism, it, it is an ideology that, as you say, has this Manichaean worldview. And what I find even more troubling, honestly, um, than the anti-Semitism, and I say this, in, I think everybody knows, and you know certainly how, how troubled I am by the anti-Semitism, it is the sheerest indifference, indifference to all the other examples of human rights violations. So, you know, half a million Syrians are killed by the Assad regime with Iran and Russia and Hezbollah's help. And where were these fucking people? 
They were nowhere. Because the white people and the Jews didn't do it. Right. But that's (laughs) it. And, you know, that in and of itself is so racist. You know, it's okay for brown people to kill other brown people. This is the problem of Africa. For, For decades, we heard, do you remember the Washington group? What was it called? Trans Africa. Trans Africa. That was it. <laughs> I'm showing my age people, to remember them. Yeah, well, I'm impressed that you remembered it. But these people care deeply about evil Rhodesia and evil South Africa. But the second that the evil white oppressor, the evil colonialists, the French, the Brits, whoever they were, the second they were gone, they were like, eh, black people oppressing other black people, black people like killing other black people. We don't give a shit. What do we care about that? It's, it is awful. Well, I mean, it's the same, it's the same phenomenon that you saw during the George Floyd riots when people would have mass marches over a small number of white police officers who, who abused or killed black, uh, black uh, people. And, but they couldn't care less about the fact that there are hundreds of black people killing other black people in, in, in south side of Chicago. That violence didn't matter. That violence didn't cause, uh, cause marches. And all of the violence is terrible, but it seemed to be okay as long as it was white people uh, doing the doing the killing. How have we ended up in this place where we reduce human beings to, to their race? To their race? Yes. No, it's exactly right. And and you know it's fascinating too. There was a really interesting article by Pamela. Pareski, uh, called uh, Critical Race Theory and the Hyper White Jew, in a magazine I don't know called Sapir, but here she said. Oh, that, that's the one that Brett Stevens is involved with. Oh, that's great. She wrote, in the critical social justice program, Jews who have never been seen as white by those who, for whom whiteness is a moral good are now seen as white by those for, for whom whiteness is an unmitigated evil. So, I mean, the Jews weren't white enough for the white supremacists. But for the critical race theory crowd, they're as white as snow. So, I mean, the Jews can't get, they can't win no matter what when it comes to identity politics. They're not white enough or they're too white, depending on which, which side uh, of the coin you're on. Well, uh, you know what? I just came from, from the March for Israel, and um, I don't know exactly how many people were there. Um, people are saying 60,000 or 100,000 or 200,000. I have never seen the Jewish community, and not just Jews— but friends of Jews, people, you know, people who aren't Jewish like you, but who, who abhor anti-Semitism, who, who celebrate, you know, Israel, who hate terrorists. The, I have never seen people standing together. Yes, absolutely cheerful. Yes, polite to each other. No one, weirdly, as someone tweeted out, no one, weirdly, covering their face and hiding their identity yep, for the exactly. police, um, in this march, but I have never seen them more determined just you know no we're not going to take it anymore and that at least at least i hope that lasts well here's the thing that we need to recognize which is that look there is anti-semitism across the political spectrum there's anti-semitism on the right there's anti-semitism on the left and we all have to have a responsibility to police our movements you and i are conservatives so we have a particular responsibility to speak out when people in the name of of of, of the right uh spew this stuff um, but it, it ex- we're now seeing it rear its ugly head in a way that many people are shocked by on the left. Right-wing anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Semitism are different in the sense that right-wing anti-Semitism is a fringe phenomenon. It's the neo-Nazis with their tiki torches marching in Charlottesville saying Jews will not replace us. You don't see them on the campus of Harvard University. You don't see them at Columbia. You don't see them at all these elite universities. 
On the left, anti-Semitism is an elite phenomenon that is driven by, like all these left-wing ideologies, it's embraced by an ideology that claims to be spewing it in the name of a higher good. I mean, that's sort of the difference between communism and fascism, right? You know, the Nazis just killed Jews because they openly hated Jews. The communists killed people in the name of the uh, of the proletariat against the capitalist oppressors. And they killed hundreds of mil- 100 million people in the 20th century, but they did it for a good cause, right? And so here you have anti-Semitism being spewed in the name of a good cause, in the name of the liberation of the Palestinian people, in the name of the pushing back against the, the race oppressors and the anti-colonialists and all the rest of it. And so this high-minded anti-Semitism on the left, somehow it, it has some social currency, that people will say, well, okay, well, we don't want to overtly say that we, we, we don't support what Hamas did. But, you know, they've got a point, uh, you know. And no, they don't have a point. There is no point. When you say from the river to the sea, you're talking about the eradication of the Jews. You're not talking about a liberation uh, movement. And this has creeped into the Democratic Party in a way that is that is very troubling. You know, they, they, well, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have been spewing anti-Semitism in Congress for years and years and years. It only after October 7th did the Congress finally take one of them to task. Um, yeah. th- these, these people should be thrown out of Congress. They should be thrown out of the Democratic caucus. The Democratic Party should say, you know, the same people who said to the Republicans, you should you got to go after Donald Trump because he didn't condemn Charlottesville enough. Well, I'm sorry. Where is the condemnation of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar before October 7th? We have to police our movement, but they have to police their movement, too. And they haven't done a job of it. I I agree with you, although I will say at the March for Israel, House Speaker, get this, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, flanked by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, spoke out and Hakeem Jeffries says, quote, Israel has an absolute right to defend itself against Hamas terror always and forever. And he gave another interview, he gave an interview to um, NPR and same thing. And he's no, been great. No and you know who else has been great? Hillary Clinton. Also, my has been God. fantastic on this. I've been shocked. I was on I was on special report the other night, and and uh, Brett Bayer actually teased me for having the same position as as Hillary Clinton. But she's that's been exactly right. right. But, good, but it's good not for just, her. But it's not enough to just have the right position. You You're have right. to condemn the people and excommunicate the people in your movement who are spewing this uh, this stuff and saying things that are virulently anti-Semitic. You know, have, we that's why the know, that's why the alt right is the alt right. It's alternative to the rest of the right. It's outside the rest of the right. Our job as conservatives is to keep them outside the movement and to right. make sure that they don't find their way into it. And that's why, you know, uh, God bless him, Kevin McCarthy condemned Marjorie Taylor Greene when she came out with her Jewish space lasers, uh, you know, comment and all the rest of it. When we saw Steve King, who is, who is just an awful bigot, Say you know, talk about what's wrong with white supremacy. He was kicked off of all of his committees and he was expelled from the Republican caucus by an overwhelming vote of his colleagues. I mean, the the right, the conservative Republicans have been imperfect, but they've at least done something to to push these people out and to challenge them when they try and get into the tent. Mark, except when Donald Trump had Kanye West and that Fuentes lunatic, who was not just an anti-black bigot, but also an anti And everybody condemned it. 
And everybody yeah, on the right condemned it. But he's it. still the number one, but he's still the top Republican nominee. He, he, Talk about I, I don't want to get into this with you right now here, or Danny, but I mean, he didn't, apparently he didn't know who, who was coming, that he, this guy Fuentes was coming. As soon as he knew, he right? should have kicked them out. I'm not defending him, but you know, they, we, could, we don't always right. have to bring it back to Donald Trump, do we? Well, first of all, if we're going to police our own movement, then we need to police Donald I'm, Trump. But I want to bring it back to something else before we get to our guest, and we need to get to our guest. <laughs> but, but you and I and our friends uh, today on our group chat were talking about this dissent uh, channel memo that was sent inside the State Department. You want to talk about policing your own movement? This dissent channel inside the State Department that is writing to the secretary to condemn President Biden's support for Israel, those people ought to be fired. That's what Tony Blinken ought to do. You, you, we need not simply to police our political movement. We need to police our our civilian bureaucracy, our civil service. Well, if it is full of anti-Semites, they need to go too. Okay, but here's the thing you need to realize, and I think we need to be honest about where things are on this. This is majority sentiment in the Democratic Party today. I'm glad that Hakeem Jeffries said what he said. I'm glad that Chuck Schumer said what he said. I'm glad that Nancy Pelosi was standing there. Gallup poll earlier this year found that 49% plurality of Democrats side with the Palestinians while only 38% support Israel. This is before the attacks. After the attacks, Harvard-Harris poll, 46% of Democrats say Hamas and Israel have, quote, equally just causes, unquote. Not, not the Palestinians and Israel. Hamas and Israel have equally just causes. And this is a huge problem for the Democratic Party because it's not, they're reflecting the views of their base. They're reflecting the view. They have a, they have a huge, if, if they want to win Michigan, they need to turn out the Arab American vote in Dearborn in order to win. They're 5% of the overall electorate in Michigan and Biden won it by like 50 point, I want to say 50.2, 50.6% last time around, if the Arab Americans in Michigan don't come out for the Democrats, they lose that swing state. So they've got, they have let this creep into their party, this viewpoint creep into their party. And now they are, they have a problem because the Biden administration is hearing from their base saying, why are you, you know, defending Israel so much? It's not just that if it was just a dissent cable with a handful of, of bureaucrats, that would be fine. But that's that dissent cable is coming from 49% of the Democratic Party. Right. What did we say? It's like those horror movies. Oh, my God. It's in the house. Yes. No. All right. Amen. So, it's in the house. Our guest is uh, first time with us, David Bernstein. He holds a university professorship chair at the Antonin Scalia Law School, where he's been teaching since 1995. He's been a visiting professor basically everywhere, but you guys will hear why it was that we invited him on. He teaches constitutional law, evidence, and a whole bunch of other cool things, uh, but his most recent book is called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. He has written extensively about critical race theory, about oppressors versus the oppressed. He was the perfect person to talk about, to talk about this issue. Here's our interview. Professor Bernstein, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. So great to have you. So you had a fascinating, you've written a lot of fascinating articles, but you had a fascinating Twitter uh, feed talking about the connection between critical race theory, anti-colonialism, and all these crazy ideologies we're seeing on campus and this rise of anti-Semitism. Walk us through this. What is the connection between CRT and anti-Semitism? Well, the, very, the most basic connection really is judging people uh, by their origins rather than their actions. 
once then the question is well how do you judge people by their origins well you you're basically dividing society really the world into um victims and oppressors and there's no really logical way of doing this except to decide uh for political reasons who do we want to include in the oppressor class and who do we want to include in the victim class with regard to crt in particular uh they have an underlying implicit ideology, not every single CRT person, but in general, that uh, success in society for any given group is dependent on how much they are oppressing other groups or are being oppressed. So the most oppressed group should be the poorest and least successful on average, and the most successful group should be the opposite. And Jews being a successful minority group with higher education and income attainments are obviously going to be a target for being considered the part of the oppressor class, uh, given given the, the underlying ideology. It's really unbelievable to me that Jews can go from being the victims of the Holocaust to being the oppressor class, going from marching with Martin Luther King, right, who famously spoke against anti-Semitism and for Israel, to being part of the colonialist oppressor. It's it suggests to me that the category really isn't about reality. It's actually just about finding a way to put Jews in a disliked class. Is that a, a false interpretation? Well, there's certainly some of that. I mean, um, some of the impetus for CRT comes out of the left-wing black nationalist movements of the 1960s, which were quite overtly anti-Semitic. But I think one issue that Americans have with trying to understand this is that they do tend to understand racism and prejudice through a black white paradigm. So the black white paradigm is whites look down on blacks, you know, historically, you know, stereotypes that they're lazy and not that smart and all that. So that's what you're thinking of as your classic paradigm. But since you mentioned the Holocaust, if you look at anti-Semitism in Europe, it wasn't that Jews were, you know, inferior is that Jews are doing so well, not just in Germany, but in Poland and Hungary and all the other countries in in Eastern Europe, that they must be conspiring against us Gentiles. Uh, We have to have quarters in the universities because Jews are doing too well. Jews are, we have to uh, boycott Jewish businesses because they're taking business from innocent uh, Gentile businessmen who should be more successful. And it's not because Jews are inherently more talented or harder working, uh, so they must therefore be conspiring in some way. So, but but of course, there was also an explicitly racial eugenics based attitude uh, by at least by the Nazis in the Holocaust that that labeled Jews as somehow not, you know non Aryan, right? Aryan being the apogee of whiteness, you know, German whiteness. Um, it sounds it sounds ridiculous to talk about it now. And of course, the funny thing is that that also in Israel, this great colonial settler place. Um, 70% of Israel is, is Arabs, is brown people, Jews of, of Arab origin, which is even weirder. I just find the whole thing kind of uh, hard to parse. Well, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the, the, the sort of broader international version of CRT is this anti-colonial theory, which even more crudely, I'd say, than CRT, uh, divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed. And Jews, again, are put in the oppressor category. They're said to be white. They're said to be colonialist. I've had interactions on social media with a lot of 
well, I wouldn't call them serious academics, but academics who are taken seriously by others. Uh, and I say, well, you know, you say that Jews are colonialists, but to be a colonial, you have to be sent somewhere by the home country to set up a colony. How does that apply to Jews? And they're like, oh, no, we sort of have a special a, a special theory for Jews uh, that they can be colonialists without a home country. I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're just trying to shoehorn something that's completely illogical into a ideological framework you have. But it's like talking to religious fanatics. It doesn't make any uh, impression on them whatsoever. So CRT is, at its heart, uh, Marxist, right? You know, it, it divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed, in the case of, you know, classic Marxism, the, the oppressors were the capitalists and the oppressed were the, it was class struggle, class grievance. Uh, the, uh, the oppressor, the oppressed were the proletariat. And it's transfigured onto, onto race in the case that the whites are the oppressors and, and all people of color are oppressed. But it's the same grievance. And so is this Marxist, these roots of anti-Semitism? Yeah. So. Right, I think you've hit the nail on the head that it's sort of uh, at least a successor ideology of Marxism. The whole class struggle thing didn't really work out, uh, and people sort of abandoned it, but they weren't willing to abandon their desire to tear down Western society one way or the other. So they came up with the replacing the working class versus capitalists with the oppressed racial groups versus the oppressors. But I have to say it's cruder than Marxism uh, and worse in some ways than Marxism. So I was just actually mentioning this on Twitter that, you know, the Russians, at least the Soviets, were very proud of the Bolshoi ballet, right? They wanted to, they, they didn't completely reject beautiful things in Western culture because they were Western. Whereas now, well, that would just be considered whiteness somehow because it's, ballet was a European thing. I don't think they ever went as far, at least in theory, as to say, but we can never hold workers uh, on the, you know, on account, we shouldn't hold workers unaccountable no matter how, what horrible things they do, because after all, their workers are inherently innocent. But this post-colonial or anti-colonialist ideology says, basically, if you are on the wrong side of the anti-colonialist paradigm, if you are Israel and we decide that you're the colonialists, nothing you do is, is fair or right or just. And on the other hand, if you're, uh, a group that we deem to be victims of colonialism, like Palestinians, raping, murdering, beheading, torturing, kidnapping, we, we don't put any moral blame on you because this is just sort of the anti, just like the Marxists thought the natural progression of the world was for the workers to take over the, the uh, here it's for the oppressed groups to overthrow colonialism and anything they do is just sort of playing out the historical narrative that has to play out and you can't, it's just the forces of history, you can't put any blame on them. So, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a merging of all the worst of the Marxists, because the Jews are white, and so they're oppressing uh, black people, and they're also capitalists, so they're they're class oppressors as well as race oppressors. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we we I shouldn't minimize the role that anti-Semitism as such plays here. Um, it's not a coincidence that even though Israel doesn't really fit into the paradigm correctly in, in any kind of logical way. Again, there's no colony uh, that Israel established of another country, so there's no colonialism. Uh, Jews, I mean, uh, Daniel mentioned before that uh, most Jews are of Middle Eastern origin, but Jews in general um, are genetically 
culturally. I mean, we had this brief period in Europe where we tried to integrate, but Jews spoke Yiddish, their own language, that they wrote in Hebrew characters, they pray in Hebrew, they study the law in Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, they uh, face Jerusalem when they pray. I mean, it's, it's a Middle Eastern uh, religion, culture, etc., and uh, the idea that they're somehow going, going to the Middle East where they're from is... Uh, Western colonialism or white people colonialism is absurd, uh, but one of the reasons, or maybe the main reason, that Israel fell to this paradigm was that the Soviets were trying to get play in the Arab world in the 1960s against the United States, and they saw this post-colonial friends, Fanon, uh, ideology operating, and they hired a bunch of actual Keep, you know, former gulag, right-wing reactionary Russians to sort of take the old protocols of Zion kind of uh, anti-Semitism and superimpose it on this anti-colonial ideology. They spent a lot of money uh, promoting this idea among the Western left that, Jew, that Zionism is racism, Jews are colonialists, Arabs are the indigenous people, and Jews are not, and so forth and so on. You wrote a really interesting piece that draws from your book, uh, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. I don't think people really understand that racial classifications are dictated by the U.S. government. And um, I'm, I'm, first of all, interested in, in this more broadly, but then more narrowly after that, how uh, the piece that you wrote in the Times of Israel, how American Jews stayed white. So explain to our listeners, how, how does this work? So for most of American history, there were no official racial classifications at the national level, other than on the census, uh, at first you would check off if you were black or white, and then they eventually added a uh, different Asian uh, groups as well, uh, Latinos, except for one census in which Mexican was a separate classification, were always also white. Uh, but starting in the 1950s with the civil rights era, uh, American authorities say, well, if we're going to enforce civil rights laws, anti-discrimination laws, we need to figure out who we're talking about and be able to keep statistics and so on. So they gradually... Uh, started classifying everybody into different groups. I mean, the black-white one was obvious, but it wasn't at all obvious what to do about various groups from Asia, the Middle East, which is also Asia, of course, uh, Italian-Americans, uh, Jewish-Americans, groups that had suffered a lot of discrimination but were Caucasian. Uh, and to make a really long story short, and of course the whole story is in the book, in the mid-1970s, the government decided we need to have formal official classifications that are used across the government because we're getting statistics from different government agencies that are using different classifications. So some of us are old enough to remember, uh, it used to be, for example, that uh, what we now call Hispanic Latinos was Spanish surname or Spanish language household, or sometimes they would say Latinos, or sometimes they'd limit it to Chicanos, and so forth. I think there was like 12 or 13 different ways what we now call Hispanics were described, although they almost never used Hispanic. Uh, and they said, oh, we're, we all know, you know, if we're getting data from one agency using Chicano, another agency uh, using uh, Spanish language household, we're getting apples and oranges. So it was not considered to be a big deal. This was not got, did not get a lot of attention, was thought of kind of innocuous. All we're doing is kind of helping civil rights authorities and other government agencies that are collecting data to make their data uniform. They said when they published 
the formal rule in the Federal Register, where there is a formal rule uh, that these are not supposed to be used for affirmative action purposes. They said for any you know, eligibility for any government program and not scientific and not anthropological. But of course, uh, these things always have unintended consequences. And if you were a university or a government agency or um, a big corporation and you wanted to engage in affirmative action or any other policy, uh, you know, medical research, scientific research, and you weren't sure how to classify people say, oh, we have a handy dandy uh, classification scheme here. So let's just use that because and we have a lot of reporting requirements. We have to collect the data anyway. So long story short, again, uh, we wound up with white, black, Hispanic, which is not a racial category, but an ethnic one, uh, at least for now, uh, uh, Native American, uh, American Indian, and um, Asian American slash uh, Pacific Islander. That latter category is the only one that's changed substantially since the 70s. Uh, Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian is now a separate classification from Asian because people in Hawaii who are uh, Pacific Islanders and Native Hawaiians complained that when they applied to colleges in California, instead of getting affirmative action for being an oppressed group, they were put in with the Asians and were facing discrimination. Wow. Um, it, sounds, it sounds like a joke. I mean, it really does. Well, it but becomes a joke. It, it, it does. Um, and of course, but of course, it becomes a, actually a basis of discrimination, right? And we see this, you know, in college admissions, where, you know, if you're a wealthy American Hispanic, you're going to get in as a preferred minority. But if you're an Afghan who's actually worked your butt off uh, and, and come to this country and made a success of yourself, you're white. It, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, so the arbitrariness is really uh, something to behold. I mean, my, you know, there are a lot of examples you could give. I'll give two. One is that if your family came here from Sicily uh, in 1910, uh, you are Italian American, therefore every, all Europeans are just white. If your, uh, if your same grandfather, uh, instead came to Argentina for 20, uh, 1910, stayed there for 20 or 30 years, and then immigrated to the U.S., you're now, uh, this, uh, he, he became of Spanish culture or origin, which is the official definition, and now his descendants can claim to be Hispanic, even though there's no ethnic uh, or a uh, difference between the two. The other one that uh, is striking is that the original proposal in, for the rules put people from the Indian subcontinent in the white classification. Uh, we already had Middle Easterners in the white classification, so they're also from Asia. And they said, well, look, the, this group is Caucasian. And so far they have, and they still do, have higher education and economic attainment levels than American, than other American, than the average American. So why not uh, just call them white? And that's what government agencies were doing. Uh, and some little Asian Indian group got a hold of this uh, and and said, no, we want to be Asian. And they just sort of randomly just said, okay, no one else seems to care. There aren't that many Indians in the United States, so let's just make them Asian. Oh, that's great. And so how did Jews end up white, but Palestinians in this insane uh, popular construct end up being not white? So let's just start with the fact that it's been well settled since the 1910 or so that people of Middle Eastern origin are officially white, and that Jews are officially white. And this was, again, not something that um, had to happen. Jews were very 
cautious or concerned about the possibility that they would be separately racially classified, and they lobbied against it when there were attempts to do so in the early 20th century. And if you see how it happened to Jews in Europe when they were considered a separate race, you could could very well understand why they're hesitant. And Arab Americans uh, also prefer to be white. It was only an advantage to being white until the 1950s. Um, More recently, various left-wing Arab American and Iranian American groups have been lobbying to have their official classification switched to MENA, Middle Eastern and North African. The Biden administration has a proposal out to do that. It hasn't been accomplished yet. But in the world of the left-wing imagination, once um, left-wing, you know, really what changed was that we had a very, we had for the first time large-scale Arab Muslim immigration as opposed to Arab Christian immigration. Uh, And they, not they in general, but the organizations that purport to represent them threw in their lot with the left. And the way they did so is they said, we are oppressed people of color, especially after 9-11. Everyone's suspicious of us. We tend to be darker complexion than other Americans. We face discrimination. We are one with other people of color. Uh, So there's no logical reason why we would say that someone like my wife, who is Jewish and from Iraq, original, her family's from Iraq and is somewhat, you know, olive skinned, is white, but a fair skinned individual like Lisa Sarsour, who is Palestinian, who is basically almost like Casper, the friendly ghost white, uh, is a person of color. But because this fit in with the oppressor oppressed ideology, that just sort of become accepted. So we'll see these, uh, ridiculous, uh, things where, um, if you criticize Linda Sarsour, people say, "Well, you're racist because she's a person of color." And I'm like, "She's paler than I am. What are you? What are you talking about?" She even said, "You know, um, I would just be another white girl from from Brooklyn if I didn't wear my hijab." But that racializes me. It's like, so all are all the Hasidim uh, in Brooklyn now people of color? They wear much more distinctive religious garb and are much more likely to be attacked for it than you are. Doesn't make any sense. Well, I find it fascinating that for the for the right wing anti Semites, the Jews are not white, and for the left wing anti Semites, they are too white. <laughs> so the the Jews can't win either way when it comes to racial classification. Whatever the whatever the out of vogue racial classification is, apparently the Jews are it. Well, yeah, this is this is the eternal problem Jews face, and it doesn't seem to make much sense, but it seems to be a pretty persistent thing that the communists attack them for being capitalists, the capitalists attack them for being communists, the uh, cultural leftists attack them for being reactionaries when because some of them are orthodox and the uh, and Christianity they don't like the fact that Christianity descended from Judaism and the right wing Christian anti-Semites will say that they're uh, atheists trying to undermine Christian civilization uh, you know and, and so forth and so on and they're uh, cosmopolitan internationalist globalists on the one side and evil reactionary nationalist colonialists on the other so Let's let's talk a little bit about the differences between uh, right-wing anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Semitism. One of the things that I've noticed is that right-wing anti-Semitism tends to be sort of a fringe phenomenon. Like you don't, you know, whereas left-wing anti-Semitism tends to be an elite phenomenon. So you don't see neo-Nazi rallies at Harvard, but you but you do see these pro-Hamas rallies, anti-Semitic rallies, rallies at Harvard. And so the irony is that the the left it seems to hate the Jews. In, as, a, as a part of some sort of class struggle of between oppressors and oppressed, yet it's the elites who seem to, to embrace this the most. Talk to us about the difference between right-wing and left-wing anti-Semitism. Well, I think one of the big differences is that 
left-wingers, no matter how anti-Semitic they are, never admit they're anti-Semitic, right? Because it's part of their ideology they're not supposed to hate or any particular group, or colonialists in general, maybe white people in general, but no subgroups. Like, that, that would be gauche at best. Uh, so they, they, they might say the exact same, they might use the exact same language and rhetoric as right-wing anti-Semites do, particularly with regard to Israel. They may even borrow... Uh, phrases from the right and make them part of the left because there is some oh yeah there is some interaction there. So for example, uh, there was for a while it, was, it became popular in some left wing circles to talk to talk about Americans who who are Jewish and pro Israel as Israel firsters, and that language comes right from the far right, and they didn't seem at all. Um, they eventually did get a little embarrassed. Some of them did at least, but not all of them. And something like Green, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald uh, kept uh, promoting it. But in any event, so that's one issue that the left just doesn't, isn't, it has, they try to have plausible deniability. Oh, we don't hate Jewish people. And in some sense, they don't hate them on an individual level as a rule. So, you know, they're happy to have far-left Jews who agree with them in their movement and also denouncing other Jews and all that. But you know, a Nazi, a neo-Nazi is not going to want a Jew around sort of regardless. So it's really like this abstract ideological hatred. It's not that we hate you as a Jewish person and wouldn't have dinner with you or wouldn't want you to marry our daughter as long as you're ideologically okay. But we are okay with you know, the worst sorts of reactionary, barbaric terrorists murdering all your relatives in, you know, to establish a Islamic theocracy, even though we don't like Islamic theocracy, but they're the colonialists, so it's okay. Hey, Danny, can I just follow up quickly? Yes, of course. So you hit on something right here that I wanted to ask you about. They, they are advocating, this is the far left in elite institutions that are championing Islamic theocracy. I mean, have these people looked at the Hamas charter? I mean, you know, all the oppressed classes that they claim to support, Hamas wants to kill. Homosexuals should be should be Queers thrown off Palestine a building. Is what yeah. you're talking about, Mark. Homosexuals should be killed. Women are not allowed in under Hamas ideology to go out of their homes without permission from their husbands and covered up. I mean, how do they not see the the hypocrisy about championing Hamas, which is an organization that literally stands against everything that they that they believe in? That's another reason, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's another reason why this anti-colonialist or post-colonialist ideology, though descended in many ways from Marxism, is actually much worse than traditional communism. I mean, I mean, I, I, I defer to no one in my hatred of communism, but the one thing you could say for communists is that they, the ones who are true believers at least believed that by supporting communism, they would bring into effect, uh, once the communists took over, a worker state where it'd be like a paradise for everybody. There'd be no more class conflict. Everyone would have enough to eat and, you know, sort of be, it was a utopian vision. The vision of the colonial, of the anti-colonialists is not utopian at all. All they care about, literally all they care about is the people they consider the brown and black people should be in charge. It doesn't matter what kind of government they have. It doesn't matter if they're kill if they're going to kill. I mean, the, the phenomenon of queers for Palestine or worse, queers for Hamas is so bizarre until you realize that they that their ideology is that the good outcome is that the people we consider to be the non-white, non-oppressor class are in charge. It's as if the communist ideology was: we just want 
some worker, you know, the Politburo to be in charge, a workers' Politburo, and we don't care if it's Animal Farm or Utopia, it doesn't matter at all, right? It's it, it's just to have the right people in charge, which is just a, a completely, you know, much worse than communism, I think, because there's no utopia at the end to make up for all the suffering uh, and the violence. It's, it, it, it's really just, in another way it's worse, is that a lot of them just seem to look forward to and celebrate the, the people that consider the colonialists to be killed. So I just saw this crazy Jewish woman on Twitter who was saying, uh, it's not the Palestinians' job to worry about what happens to the Jews of Israel because the, the oppressed don't, their, their only job is to get rid of the oppression and it's someone else's worry what happens like so you know she says yeah so you know the US and Britain should start evacuating planking plants to evacuate the Jews so in fairness if this is fairness uh, she prefers that the Jews not all be murdered uh, and, and raped and tortured and kidnapped that there isn't a mass 10-7 but she's okay if that does happen it's not a problem because the only moral the only truly important moral calculus is that the oppressed become the rulers. So this reminds me of the fact, you know, of, of the great battle against apartheid, right? Which is, okay, whites cannot govern blacks in South Africa. Now, once the blacks are in charge, the fact that it is that the standards of living, that crime, that kleptocracy, theft, you know, everything else is now there doesn't really matter. Similarly, uh, Bashar al-Assad can, with the Iranians and Hezbollah, murder 500,000 brown Muslim people, and nobody gives a damn. Nobody was out in the streets demonstrating, right? But all of a sudden, the evil white Jews, who are not white, uh, cannot uh, actually defend themselves. But the, that was just my rant. That wasn't actually what I wanted to ask you about, although feel free to comment. But what I wanted to ask you about is, isn't this the natural product of 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 this insane sort of multiculturalism, this emphasis on hyphenation, you know, no, no, we're not all one big country, we're actually all different, and we want to categorize everybody. The thing we fought against in America for, you know, 100 years after the Civil War, um, no, 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 in fact, we want to reinstate that. Well, I would say, I mean, in a sense, it's something of a reduction and absurdum of it, right? It doesn't, I mean, you can imagine a mild version of multiculturalism, right? We had uh, uh, basically state-sponsored assimilationism for quite a while. We want, we want to bring those Catholics into Protestant schools and sort of beat the Catholicism out of them in a peaceful way. Uh, and you didn't have to do that, right? You could just say, oh, Catholicism, it could be Catholic as long as you uh, otherwise adhere to American values, that's fine, or whatever it is. But um, there is this progression. I don't think it's a natural one because it's so illogical to me, at least. But there is a progression that says once we recognize that people are different, uh, we even though those differences, it's a weird thing. They're socially constructed, but they're also permanent somehow, which doesn't make any sense. But they're socially constructed, but permanent. And since they're permanent, we have to figure out who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed and make sure the oppressed are getting their fair share. That's more CRT. You know, most CRT people, as extreme as they are in the American context, aren't, on the other hand, saying what we need is a, the, an uprising of the 45% or so of the population in the United States as people of color. Uh, if they murder all the white people, that's fine as long as they take over. So they're actually uh, at least domestically significantly less extreme than the sort of international anti-colonialist movement, although they do have some ideological commonalities, to be sure. So talk a little bit about how DEI plays into all of this. There was a fascinating op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by this DEI chief at a, a California university 
And she was told repeatedly that fighting anti-Semitism and promoting Jewish in inclusion didn't matter because Jews are white oppressors and her job was to decenter whiteness. How does this whole DEI agenda contribute to the rise of anti-Semitism? So uh, DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Every big bureaucracy now has a DEI office, corporations, universities, government, so forth. And what it comes down to is that it's not really about what lay people would call diversity, equity, and inclusion at all. It's basically about the whole idea is instead of just enforcing civil rights laws by having a civil rights office, we're going to have an internal constituency at every place in the United States with any number of employees or students that is dedicated to empowering left-wing identitarian members of certain groups that we think politically we want to promote. So the purpose of DI, I mean, of course, there are people like the op-ed writer you mentioned, there are, especially in like more less ideological parts of the country, there are DI people who are just sincere in trying to make their environment more welcoming to everybody. But the underlying basic ideology that plays out in elite institutions is that it's not to make Jews feel comfortable or Christians, you know, uh, evangelical Christians or other people that might be minorities within their social context comfortable. It's about having an internal constituency to, to ensure that affirmative action policies are applied vigorously to ensure that if there are, you know, educational programs on race or civil rights or diversity that they have in left-wing ideological bent to give support within the bureaucracy for initiatives within the institutions that promote this sort of ideology. Uh, and I'm not sure what a good name for it would be. I maybe I did, maybe diversity in terms of, you know, I don't know, the I should stand for identitarian because it's not about inclusion. It's the opposite of inclusion, right? I mean, it's a very, it's a strange thing putting aside the entire issue of who's right or wrong. I mean, I have very, strong and obvious opinions on who's right or wrong in the Israel versus Hamas context, as I think any civilized person should. But you could ignore that entirely and just say, we know that many Jewish students are feeling under attack at universities today. They feel that they are being harassed by their classmates, that they're, that they, that they feel like they're at risk of violence. There have been death threats. There have been assaults. Uh, and thus, if you're interested in inclusion, you don't have to take any position on what's going on 6,000 miles away. You could just say, regardless of how you feel about what's going on 6,000 miles away, uh, you need to be sensitive to the feelings uh, and emotional state and safety of your Jewish classmates. Almost no DEI offices have said anything of the kind. I have seen statements from universities, interestingly enough, uh, over time saying that, but they never come from the DEI office, oddly enough. No, they don't. And in fact, I have two examples just in my tiny world in the last 24 hours. One, a friend in Montgomery County Public Schools whose DEI teacher posted that the, that the massacre of October 7th didn't take place, was all a fake, right? So uh, she posts this on social media and a whole series of other terribly anti-Semitic messages. And the parents get together and the school is like, well, we need to deal with this through process and we really can't do anything about it. And, you know, Montgomery County Public Schools said, you know, are you, we are sure you understand there is a process that must be followed. I mean, imagine if she had said that about blacks, right? Imagine if she'd said, you know, blacks were never enslaved. She would have been out on her ass hours ago. Ditto, a family member, I won't go further than that, 
um, went to complain because uh, her place of work had put out innumerable statements about how COVID should not allow people to target Asian Americans and how, you know, the George Floyd protests should, that everybody should stand strong, you know, with black Americans against the police, but would not put out a single statement and explain to them that they couldn't put us out a statement about anti-Semitism to protect their Jewish employees without saying something about Islamophobia. I mean, DEI is so fucking bankrupt. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it is not just against anti-Semitism. It is for anti-Semitism. Or it's anti-anti-anti-anti-Semitism. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, not, I, I'm just basically ranting. But I mean, it really is <laughs> staggering how well, all of our podcasts have basically been me ranting at everybody because I'm so outraged by all of this. But I mean, I just it, it is just amazing that DEI has actually positioned itself against Jews. Yeah, uh, it's... It, well, look, the bureaucracies operate on their bureaucratic incentives and right now there's no bureaucratic incentive or hasn't been at least maybe they'll this will change uh in the wake of the recent events but there has been no bureaucratic incentive uh to hire people promote people uh etc based on whether part of their dei uh, function is to make people who are not part of the preferred identity groups feel comfortable whether it be jews or or anybody else. Again, I mean, you know, I mean, we have this really weird thing that this this is uh, that I've had interactions with a lot of people who say, I say, well, what about like, you know, if you're an evangelical Christian at some big law firm today, or you know, people are really hostile to you. They say, well, Christians are the majority, so they, they don't have to worry about them. And first of all, even if that's true, they don't. Who care? You know, if they're being if they're being treated poorly, why do you care what they're what they are elsewhere? But I also point out that you know. Christians are not some monolithic group. Uh, evangel, you know, if you go to a big law firm in New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago or any, anywhere outside the South, the number of evangelical Christians will be extremely minimal and other people will be often inherently suspicious of them. And it doesn't matter if, if, you know, in Tupelo, uh, Mississippi, they're 80% of the population. If at your law firm, they're like three out of 250, uh, they're, they're, they, they could use a voice when, if they, if someone's treating them badly, but they don't get that. Cause that's not what DI is supposed to do in the minds of the DI people. I guess micro minorities within, within a context. If we've got microaggressions, we can have micro minorities. So Danny mentioned this at the start, but I think it, it's worth exploring a little bit. The Jews, helped lead the battle for civil rights. And most Jews in America vote Democratic, consider themselves part of the left. Is there a sense of betrayal on the part of a lot of Jews today? Are people recognizing that these people who they thought were their ideological compatriots, who were fellow progressives, who were fighting for the same causes, they marched for their causes, but now they have this big march in Washington and they're going to look to their left and their right and see none of them with them marching against anti-Semitism. And how does that play out? Is that going to affect any kind of political realignment in this country? I've certainly seen a lot of chatter on social media to that effect. But frankly, most of my my family uh, tends to be conservatives or libertarians. 
My Jewish friends tend to be conservative libertarians. My wife uh, is somewhere in in, uh, in that realm, although she did start off as a liberal. And stuff like this has helped change her, especially dealing with her own DEI bureaucracy, uh, you know, in in her uh, her own life. But how much? So I'm not the best person to to ask what's going on. I do know there's another David Bernstein who wrote a book called Woke Anti-Semitism. So obviously we have overlapping some overlapping interests here, uh, and. He left the organized Jewish communal world where he had been working for a good 20 plus years because he saw them adopting the DEI, uh, CRT kind of agenda because they wanted to go along with their allies. And he said that he thought that this was bad for the country and bad for Jews. And he started something called the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. And a lot of people are attacking him, uh, because, you know, you know, he's a Judas kind of, you know, in that sense. But he said he's been getting private emails from people, you know, mailing you know, you were right, uh, we were wrong, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, but who knows how much of that will last, how much of it is true. But, you know, um, it's really, the one thing that's really been an earthquake, and this is something, regardless of how much it changes how people vote, the cultural change is that the anti-Semitism we're seeing so prominently right now is coming not from places where Jews fairly or unfairly don't feel comfortable, don't feel like their kind of place. Like we know there are these white nationalist militias in the panhandle of Idaho. We know that there's always been like an undercurrent of racism, you know, in rural towns in the deep South. That's not where this is coming from. There's certainly still anti-Semitism from those areas, but this prominent public anti-Semitism we're seeing is coming from places that were thought of places, I call them like Jewish places, not that they were exclusively Jewish, but that they were culturally friendly to Jews. Jews play a prominent role. You would never think about anyone treating you badly because you're Jewish. Harvard, Cornell, especially NYU, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, these are schools, those last three are schools that when I was a teenager had Jewish populations of 40% and up. And now they've reduced their Jewish population significantly. They still have a fair number, but it's also now hostile. Wearing a, you know, you wear a Hebrew t-shirt or Star of David or even just something or just a kippah and you might have someone come in, come in and assault you, uh, in the legal sense, which means, you know, do something threatening as opposed to phys- physically assault you, like, cause you're a Zionist pig or how, you know, or how, how do you justify murdering Palestinians or whatever? My exit question for you is, you know, is this the end of wokeism? Is this the beginning of the end? I, th- I think a lot of people in a country have looked at these college campuses on what's happening in this woke ideology and how it's how it's embraced anti-Semitism, how it, the, the, these marches on college campuses and all the rest of it. I think normal Americans have been shocked and it's on TV every day. They're seeing it. It's, it's in the press. Is this a real PR disaster for the woke movement and will it have any lasting impact? I think it is a PR disaster. I'm not sure about the lasting impact. One thing that I find a bit concerning, at least at the elite level, uh, I don't claim to have my finger on the pulse of the American public more generally, but I do know something about what goes on um, at universities. And um, I see these donors, for example, to Penn, who've now said they're not going to donate to Penn because it's been complicit in anti-Semitism, saying we're not going to give any money to Penn, to Penn until they get rid of their current president. That's not going to solve the problem. I mean, yes, they could have had a president who exhibited better leadership on, in a variety of ways, but you have the, the the entrenchment of these radical leftist ideologues who believe in this 
horrible identitarian, really racist, reverse racist, you might say, ideology that targets Jews and merely changing uh, horses midstream is not going to do anything. There has to be some sort of fundamental reform, fundamental reform of the type that some of the red states are trying to engage in, getting rid of the DEI bureaucracies, uh, interfering more. I believe in academic freedom, but I don't believe that academic freedom means that you allow ideologically driven, politicized departments to choose their to continually hire their friends regardless of academic credentials because they want like-minded people there, which is what's happening in various social uh, humanities and sometimes social science departments around the country. So that's that's the fulcrum point. Are we going to just say, oh, you know, this person won't get a job at a law firm because they said nasty things and we'll, we'll uh, have a committee to study anti-Semitism at the university uh, and we'll maybe get rid of some of the presidents who've pissed off donors too much. Or are we going to, or is there going to be uh, more of an impetus to say this, these people are evil uh, or at least they have an evil ideology. And while we can't, fire all of them necessarily, especially if they're at universities. We could ignore them. We could take away the funding they get, sometimes from the U.S. government, sometimes from the university. We could not let them speak in the name of the university, uh, and so forth and so on. Right. That's the big dilemma ahead of us. So uh, my exit question, because you live in Washington, I live in Washington, Mark lives in Washington, everything in Washington is political, including where you go get your pizza and where you buy your chicken sandwiches. Um, it, when the last time you saw, well, we've never seen an outburst of anti-Semitism like this in America, but the last time you saw the divisions that we've been talking about, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, CRT, uh, colonialists versus anti-colonialists, however you want to describe it, right? Anti-Semitism by another name, for me at least, um, you saw a real backlash against the Democratic Party when Jimmy Carter was perceived to be extremely anti-Israel. And of course, reliably, in the mid-70s, the Jewish community in America votes for the Democratic Party. That At that point, he lost a couple of points, uh, which can be a significant number because Jews in America are reliable voters. Um, Do you think there's going to be a backlash against the far left of the Democratic Party? Biden's been good, but of course, so many have not. Or do you think I'm just just over-politicizing this? Uh, well, you know, Carter lost more than a few points. I, I think the leading survey showed he got 45% of the Jewish vote uh, when Jews at the time were voting routinely 80%, a little bit less from McGovern because he was so radical, but 80% for uh, Humphrey, for example. Um, so uh, so it was a, a, there was a real backlash there. Of course, Biden has been threading the needle, so to speak. He's trying not to get, he's trying to make noises not to have the far left be too angry at him. There's a real dilemma in the Democratic Party. They're activist class. The people who knock on doors and hand out leaflets and go to rallies and so forth are much more likely to be in the far left. So if you lose them, it's a big blow. But, you know, can you sister soldier this, right? People remember uh, Clinton tri- triangulating and denouncing the far left. And I don't know if he can. Uh, and, re- and meanwhile, um, a real dilemma for Jewish, let's say, moderates who lean democratic but could be swayed to go to the other side is that um, Trump uh, has played footsie with a variety of extremist groups. He had dinner with Ye. Just in general, his conspiratorial, uh, really crudely populist kind of politics is never good for Jewish people. Uh, Even if the leader isn't anti-Semitic, it sort of 
uh, fosters a, an environment in which anti-Semitism thrives. So if it's if it's Biden versus anybody else, I can imagine a lot more people going over to the Republicans than if it's Biden versus Trump um, or any Democrat versus Trump. The other issue I think is though I think that Jews. A lot of Jews are who are not that political. Like my wife is very upset about everything, and she's like ready to do whatever. And she normally, like, she would just sort of when I talk about politics, sort of nod, like, "That's nice, David." You know, nice, nice husband. <laughs> and now she's like ready to sign this, do this, right? So um, I do think that there that that there's going to be knife fights all over the country between not just Jews but all moderate liberal people who are on the side of Western civilization against barbarism, essentially, which doesn't seem like that high a bar, but it is, uh, and those who want to destroy Western civilization, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, and we'll see how that plays out. No, you're exactly right. And, and actually, you are right. I got my number wrong. So I checked this while we were chatting. 45% of the Jewish vote went to Jimmy Carter. Interestingly, for uh, no labels in this uh, section uh, cycle, 14% of Jews in 1980 voted for the third party candidate, John Anderson. Something to ponder. And, and I agree with you. This is a great opportunity for the Republican Party if the Republican Party is not helmed by Donald Trump. This pretty much could end every podcast. Why We're against anti-Semitism, <laughs> outraged by anti-Semitism on the left. And this is an opportunity, if only it weren't for Donald Trump. So that summarizes the What the Hell podcast. Thank you. You've been wonderful. It was really a delight to have you. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. So, Mark, are the commies back? <laughs> well, they are on our campus. I don't know if they've ever left our campuses. They've just oh. morphed, right? So it used to be outright uh, Marxists, you know, supporting the Soviet view of the world. And now uh, they've morphed into the anti-colonialist, anti-racists. But it's the same ideology. In Marxism divided the world into uh, oppressors and oppressed. And under Marxism, the oppressors were the capitalists and the oppressed were the proletariat. Today, the, Marx the neo-Marxist left is dividing the world into oppressors and the oppressed, and the oppressors are the white people and the oppressed are people of color. And the Jews are the combination of the two enemies of the Marxists. They are capitalists and they are, in their view, white. Why the unique hatred for the Jews from the neo-Marxist left is because they, are, they, they epitomize everything they hated before and everything they hate today. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sad, though, for me, because... It is a reflection on the bankruptcy of our education system, and I know we've talked a lot about our, our uh, you know, about education and about universities in recent podcasts. But the sort of valueless, but not valueless, the valuesless uh, nature of education, the fact that people don't understand the legacy of 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 communism and Marxism, the fact that there is so little understanding of, uh, of this ideology that informs how they feel about the oppressed and the oppressor is really awful if you think about it. I mean, we're spending you know, billions of dollars sending a quarter of our nation to institutes of higher education, and they're learning nothing. Um, or worse yet, they're learning garbage that makes them not simply hate Jews or, or, or love Hamas, but also hate America. That's interesting because we had a podcast a few months back about the collapse of patriotism among young 
young people, right? right? Because they're being taught that their country is an oppressor country. I mean, America's probably liberated more people from from tyranny and totalitarianism than any country in the history of the world. And they're being taught that this country is systemically racist, that it was founded to, to perpetuate slavery, that it's continuing to perpetuate colonialism and occupation around the world, and that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a miasma of social injustice. And what are they going to do? How are we going to defend our values on the world stage if people don't believe in our values to begin with? I mean, part of education is supposed to be helping raise up good citizens, people who understand the uniqueness of this country. This is the I mean, what what's so horrible about it is that this is the only country in human history that was ever founded on an idea, which is the idea of human freedom that any and this is why this can be a country of immigrants, why we can absorb immigrants from around the world, because anybody who believes in the idea of America, that all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, and we've lived, uh, lived up to it imperfectly. My priest friend, Father Charles Pope, always says, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. Well, as a country, we're not who we want to be yet, but we're not who we used to be, but we're moving in the right direction. And No, we're not. That's the thing. Uh, Oh. I'm not sure we're moving in the right direction anymore. Mark, take a look. You know, again, I, 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 I cringe when I speak out against immigration because uh, I don't think that this is a question of the immigrants failing so much as it is of the country that hosts them. But if you want to know why it is that there are 300,000 people on Veterans Day or what's called in what in the UK is called Armistice Day, why there are 300,000 people marching in support of Hamas on Armistice Day, yep. it is because of the failure of the British, the French, the Europeans, the Germans to teach the people who move there from wherever, I don't care where you came from, Afghanistan, Syria, Timbuktu, I don't give a damn, to teach them their values, to teach them about civics, to teach them to abandon the tribalism, the hatreds, the anti-Semitism that came with them from their home country. That's where this comes from. And we are headed not in the opposite direction. We are headed in that direction where all of these tribes are out marching against Israel, right? No, I, because, I don't, I don't, because of that. I don't disagree with that at all. I, what I meant was that not who we want to be, but we're not who we used to be in the sense that we don't have Jim Crow anymore. There's greater racial justice and, and equality in this country than it ever has. And the irony of it is, is that at that at this moment, when we've actually overcome so much, um, and uh, is that a moment that the left has chosen to undermine belief in that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I support, my mother was a stateless refugee after World War II. Right. And I look at at all these people coming, being allowed to come in here and abuse the refugee system in order to – they're economic migrants. And I have no problem with economic migrants as long as they come in in an orderly fashion. We need workers in this country. We have half the half of the small businesses in America can't have open jobs that they can't find somebody to take. We need more migrants, but it has to be orderly. Uh, as, as Ronald Reagan put it in his, uh, in his farewell address – the city on a hill has to have walls, but it should also have a wide open gate welcoming people. And if you let people breach the walls, then the people are going to shut the gate. And that's what we're seeing right now. And if you let people in who hate America, I'm sorry, if you're marching for Hamas and, and marching in support of terrorism, you should be deported. 
if you're a if you're a student at at Harvard or one of these Ivy League schools and you're march and you're harassing Jewish students on campus, I'm sorry, your student visa should be revoked. You say I, we just saw that MIT was going to discipline a bunch of students and they decided not to because they'd lose their student visas if they were suspended. I'm sorry. They should, they should be deported. You know, I'm saying, wait a minute. Country. Wait, this is what should happen, Mark. So a lot of people, and then we've, we've got we've to wrap up, but this is what should happen. A lot of people don't understand that the right to grant student visas is actually with the university. We should yes. do a podcast on this because people yes. don't understand this and it's fascinating. We should and talk we about should, this. And we should take that privilege away from any school that uses it to protect terrorists. Amen. Well, I, think, Amen. I think we've granted enough. All right, we have. Hey, folks, For more renting next week, come <laughs> back to this same bat time, same bat channel <laughs> for a new episode of Danny and Mark Rant. That's, we, that, that's the alternative name for our podcast. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening and for being with us. We're really appreciative. Take good care of yourselves. Take care. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.